You're listening to The Partnerhood Podcast with Christy Sears-Thompson. Hi, everybody. I am with Anna Francis today of Prickly Mermaid, and I am Christy Sears-Thompson of The Partnerhood. Anna, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Yeah. My name is Anna Francis. I'm the owner and operator of Prickly Mermaid Acupuncture and Herbs. And what do you specialize in? I specialize in women's uh, trans and non-binary sexual health. Nice. And in doing that through acupuncture and Chinese herbs, I mean, that's a definitely a, an Eastern approach more so than I think a lot of Western culture is used to. So is there any way that you can kind of give us a very basic, like, how is this helpful um, as opposed to regular Western medicine and treatment? Sure. Um, so the medicine in general looks at people as as whole being. Our physical and our emotional parts are not separated from each other, and each one can cause the other. So if we are having emotional issues like stress, anxiety, overwhelm, it's going to affect us physically. And how that comes out with um, relation to sex is sex drive, low libido, lack of desire, lack of orgasm, difficulty orgasming, or pain with sex. Those can all manifest from emotional things. There can also be physical causes. There can be trauma either from assault or from childbirth. There can be pelvic floor issues that haven't been resolved. And those can then in turn affect us emotionally. So we can treat either one to affect the other one. So most of what I do is um, indirectly treating the sexual health issue through other things that are manifesting in the body. Gotcha. Yeah, I've done acupuncture myself in the last, you know, few years and I haven't done it regularly um, recently, but I can say like, it makes such a huge difference for all different kinds of treatments. I mean, it's not just one thing. It's not for pain. I think a lot of people think it may be acupuncture is for pain, but it doesn't always have to be for that. Um, it, it can be for so many different kinds of things. So I love that you're using it for sexual wellness and like getting back to re-engaging um, and feeling whatever normal means. Yeah, the normal one's a big one because we're, I don't know if anybody else, but my sex education, the last time I had it was in fifth grade and it was horrendous. I think I learned how to use a tampon through a test tube and a tampon, like they pouring water out. And, and I got a rose with thorns on it that told me that that was going to protect my rose, which the messaging behind that is, is phenomenal. Um, so it's, there's just so much poor information out there. And most of what I spend my time doing is reassuring people that actually how they are is, is pretty normal. There might be some things to work around, but however their experience in their sex drive is what's right for them. Right. I think a lot of people get caught up in what is quote unquote normal. And that's something that we talked about a few days ago, just kind of like prepping for our talk today was whatever you're doing and going through and experiencing is normal. Like whatever your desire is, is normal. Um, you know, there's maybe very, very rare cases where there's dysfunction or like, you know, trauma can certainly bring up dysfunction. Um, but, you know, different things that you feel, think about, um, a lot of that is actually kind of normal and to normalize 
that feeling for people makes them not feel like such an outsider and a weirdo? Even just getting the relief that how you experience drive, it, that either people who want it, it's, there's two different types of desire. There's spontaneous and reciprocal desire. And when people even learn between the difference between those, it's, it's like eye-opening and mind-boggling where people realize that they are actually okay. We don't all have to be like the movies. We don't all have to be like terrible porn that is out there. You know, unfortunately there's a lot of porn that is not women led or women directed and it can lead to some very false ideals of what it should and could look like. Right. So there's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen yeah. along with a lot of learning about what is good or yeah. what is an appropriate sex drive. Right. Yeah, porn can be a fantasy for sure. I mean, that's what it is, is fantastical imagination of what could be, but a lot of it is not based in reality. And that can be really damaging to a real relationship in the real world of thinking and feeling like whatever's going on in, in what you saw or experienced in a pornography is not what you're experiencing in real life and it makes you maybe feel less than or inadequate um, or strange. Yes, I mean, porn, porn is a tool and it's a tool that can be used. And like any tool, you should make sure it's a quality tool. A lot of the free porn out there is, is going to be not as great of a tool. So it's, take some time to search for porn that you pay for is generally gonna be a better way to go. And, and, and from those, you can learn what is an appropriate relationship to have with sex. It's less fantastical. It's sure. And there's more ethical porn out there as well. I mean, not exploitive. Yes. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Um, and that could certainly be a tool that can help um, in some relationships, as long as it's being used appropriately, like you said. Um, and in the population that I work with as a therapist and in my partnerhood, part of my business, I work a lot with expectant and new parent couples. And of course, there has to be some sort of sexuality in creating a child, whether that is, you know, through biological regular practices of insertion of penis and vagina, uh, if there is insemination, if there's in vitro, um, surrogacy, like whatever, creating a life happens because of sexuality. And there's some strange feelings about maybe even wanting to do that in the first place if people don't have a good relationship with their own sexuality or they have trauma in the past. Mm -hmm. um, and even when they're pregnant, that also can bring up a lot of feelings and dysfunctional behaviors. Um, what's your experience in working with people who are going through some of things like that? It can really go across the board. You know, when people have been trying for a while, then sex becomes a chore and monotonous and it takes a lot of the joy and delight out of it. And then if you're repeatedly not getting pregnant or having repeated miscarriages, then, then there can be a fear that gets developed around sex because you don't want to try again because of the fear of either the real loss or the perceived loss of not being, not actually getting pregnant. So it can come up like that. With, with my queer patients, it can come up with um, gender identity, especially for trans folks. If there are, you know, if one of the partners is, is stepping out into a more 
structured gender role that can bring up big feelings of dysphoria and disassociation and it can trigger a lot of people's um, emotional well-being in, in a negative way. Um, and it's just, it gets into a real, a place where the emotional struggle becomes overwhelming. People who struggle with infertility, just, they have been through the gauntlet and, and acupuncture is usually the last resource. So people have been through many different treatments before they come to me, mm. which, which can be hard. It's, it's a lot of space to hold. Yeah. Yeah. It, it has a lot of layers to it. Um, and messages that we even get about sexuality begin very young. So a lot of that stuff gets ingrained at a very young, early age. Mm -hmm. And if we don't address what may have been mis-messages or miscommunications about what healthy boundaries are, what healthy sexuality may be, um, that can really do a lot of damage for our re adult relationships as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, I mean, it taps in if people aren't getting pregnant and they're wanting to, it taps into, you know, the ideal woman as one who has children based on societal expectations. And so what does it mean if you're not able to get pregnant or if you're not able to carry a baby, then it gets tied into self-worth and your value as a human. And that that's a slippery road to go down. Sure. I mean, and on the flip side of that, if someone doesn't want to have a child mm. <laughs> and either mm -hmm there's this societal pressure of well, when are you having kids or there's a, I did not plan to have a child and I got pregnant anyway. Yeah, both of those. And then there's also the dismissal you get from the medical community. There's the, the generation that's the lower thirties. There's a lot of people who are opting out of having children and who are seeking permanent means to that end, either through a hysterectomy or having tubal ligations, and they have to fight with the medical care providers to get that. And there's a lot of patronizing that happens, telling them that they'll change their mind. They just haven't met the right person yet, or one day they'll want it. And it's it's a lot of being pat on the head and sent out the door and, and completely dismissed. Sure. Uh, and it's, it's an increasing thing that's happened. And I hope that medical providers get up to date on it because that generation is increasingly not wanting to have children. Yep. Yeah. And there's to risk being a little controversial here. Um, there's a gendered discrimination about that as well. You know, if you're gendered as female, you get discriminated against for not wanting to have children. Whereas if you're gendered male, there's not really that kind of discrimination or pushback. No, you get to be the sexy bachelor instead of the uh, the old maid or the spinster. Even even the names that go along with it are pretty different. Yeah, we could probably talk a really long time about that, but I don't I a don't really want to go into that too deeply. <laughs> right. Um, but for the people who do choose to have children, um, mm -hmm. it still can bring up a lot of difficulty. I mean. Pregnancy in itself is such a huge transition for a person's body. Um, yeah. You change so much. The hormones change so much and fluctuate. Um, the way you grow, you shift, you feel about yourself, you look at yourself in the mirror, aches and pains and places that you didn't remember existed. Um, you know, for me, I had two very different pregnancies and my first pregnancy was wonderful. I actually liked being pregnant. My second pregnancy, I never wanted to do it ever again. <laughs> yeah. 
it was just such a different experience in how my body reacted to having a baby. And I know that that's probably very similar to a lot of people who have children is their experience with pregnancy really alters how you feel within like your own physical body, but also how you feel like relating to other people, um, mm -hmm. especially a partner or spouse, because maybe you just don't feel like yourself and you don't really want to be touched or you get like an overdrive of sexuality. Mm -hmm. So a lot of things shift and change and like, it's very strange time of nine months that really shifts your perspective. <laughs> yeah, and your body wholly becomes not your own anymore. I mean, there's unwanted touch and lots of questions that are fairly invasive. And, and that doesn't stop with childbirth, that continues on, but the mom gets forgotten after that. Once the baby's out, it becomes all about the baby and less about the mom. And if, you know, what are you complaining about? You have a healthy baby, you should be fine. And, we all know that is not often the case. Uh, something that I've been, I hope, okay about doing for my friends and family members who have had children and been pregnant is to remember that they're a person too. They're not mm -hmm. just an incubator. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a lot of the care and attention goes to the baby because they can't care for themselves. But then in that postpartum period, mom needs a lot of help also for that healing and recovery and mental and emotional and spiritual and physical care. Like it's just so all encompassing of everything that shifts and changes as soon as that baby enters the world. And yeah, in this, in this medicine, there's supposed to be a 30 day um, rooming in period where you are essentially in bed or around your bed for 30 days. And you're supposed to be caretaken by other women in your community and have food brought to you and be washed and have the baby held and receive all this abundant support. And we, we don't have medical leave, we don't have pregnancy leave. And so women go back far too early and childbirth either vaginally or through C-section is traumatic and a major investment from our body. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of healing. And we are setting women up to fail, asking them to get back you know, either to work or just to regular life, just to hang out with friends and running errands and caretaking of other children it's too much and to have the expectations and to see celebrities bounce back uh, and showing off their bodies is 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 hard um, sure they have personal trainers and nannies and all different kinds of people that they pay to help them get to that point they're probably also dying a little bit inside because you, you can't bounce back you on the on the outside you can look like it but it is such a shift and you such a big part of you changes. Your life is no longer wholly your own. And that is a major shift to undergo. And then you're dealing with having fluids everywhere and being leaked on and it's just- Your own and the baby's. <laughs> yes, it's just, it's not a pretty time. We should be in bed for that. Yeah, oh my gosh. I, one of the most helpful things I think I did for myself in my second pregnancy and birth experience was I really prepared for that postpartum like healing time mm -hmm. way better than I did for my first one because I didn't really know what to expect and, you? <laughs> right, until you go through it or you've seen other women do that you know so what I did was I got the angled peri bottle from mama Frida or mom Frida Frida mm -hmm. mom I'm probably saying 
incorrectly, but it's like the ones who uh, they have so many like baby and mom kind of related products. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, that thing was amazing. Like way better than the regular Perry bottle they give you at the hospital or a birth center. That's just like a squeezy bottle, kind of like a- It's like ketchup a ketchup bottle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this one has like an angled spout on it. So you don't have to finagle with it all silicone so you can put it in the dishwasher if you need to. Um, Super, super helpful. I got a bunch of um, padsicles. So those like, um, yeah, those are great. Oh oh my goodness. Especially (laughs) after like a vaginal birth, you really need to like cool down the area (laughs) and have enough to be able to like absorb in those like huge diaper pads kind of suck, but you need them at least for that first week or two, um, Mm -hmm. depending on how much you bleed. I mean, this is kind of graphic, you know, but it's the reality of of having a child is like your body goes through so much. You have created a human plus another organ and increased your blood supply. I mean, what else? That's pretty miraculous, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. And then you make a substance that can keep a human alive. Like that that part right. was always mind-boggling for me. But yeah. that seems, that's pretty cool. I know, right? I mean, really, I think I'm biased because I'm uh, also, you know, I identify as a woman, but I think women are kind of superheroes because <laughs> we can bring and sustain life. And, and it's that's, a pretty good skill. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're awesome without that. The fact that that can happen is pretty great. Well, and then you're dealing with all, you know, being covered in fluids and having to go back to real world. And then I know that some people look forward to their six week appointment where they're given the free and clear for sex. And I was dreading it. I did not want that permission. It felt like too much. I was, I was touched out. My body wasn't there. And it feels like everybody's sitting and waiting for that magical date to happen. And that is a, it has a made up date. Mm -hmm. It is when theoretically, if everything went according to plan, your body is ready, but that speaks nothing to if there were, if there was tearing, if there was a C-section, if you had trauma, um, if you felt like your rights were violated during childbirth, which is incredibly common, or if you're not mentally or emotionally there. And, and that can be, um, it's just an extra level put on to women where they feel like, again, they're failing because they're not ready to go for a role in the hay at six weeks postpartum. Yeah. And that can bring up so much disappointment when those expectations aren't met mm-hmm. um, for yourself or for other people. And I, I mean, I saw this kind of funny little like meme that was a person whole person holding two round balloons and like one long balloon that was in the shape of genitalia. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, that's what it looked like. And they were holding it like right in front of their crotch. And it was a picture that said, my husband waiting for me at my six month appointment. Oh. And I was like, oh, oh, kind of funny, but kind of like, geez, like, I, I understand, especially if sex is really prevalent in the relationship and if there's this expectation of, well, we haven't had a lot of sex because you've been pregnant or, you know, the baby's needed you and you've needed to heal, but now it's my turn to have your body. Um, I'm not okay with that. I'm not either. Just, just the word expectation is pretty, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I think it brings a lot of shame on women that they're not good enough or they're not woman enough or they're failing as being a mom and a wife because there's these unrealistic expectations. You know, I, I was taught that, you know, I can be a mom and I can have a job and I can be, I can have everything I want. And I don't actually think that's true how our society is structured. I think if we had communal support, then that could be true. And, and these expectations around being everything just leads to people feeling like they're not enough. And it's, it's unfair. Yeah. And I don't know if maybe that's a cultural thing for our, our society in general, um, because I know other countries and other societies have very different ideas of how they do parental leave. I was mm -hmm. just talking with someone, um, but there's no like, there's no really built in anything for that bonding experience for a father in particular for most companies. Mm -hmm. And for women, I think that the norm is what, six weeks? I think that's a generous, I think most places don't actually get six, six weeks. And if you're working um, as a shift worker, then, then you get whatever you can afford to take off, but that's, right, that's right. about it. It's, it's very rare to have paid maternal leave. And that's really unfortunate. I mean, the, to put it very, very lightly is very unfortunate mm -hmm. to ha have a society where we want to, quote unquote, take care of these families, and yet we don't give them the opportunity to even have that bonding and emotional experience for that first such impressionable small amount of time when they're mm -hmm. so little and they really, really need their caregivers. Yeah, they, they, and it is such a small window and it's such a crucial one. And baby health, yes, but maternal health as well. It's, it's, um, you know, postpartum depression is is a big and overlooked thing in our country, and a lot of people, women struggle with it alone, and that is detrimental for a long time to both her health but also to the child's health. It, it not child's health is a strong one, but it can lead to just a lack of awareness around a child's things because the moms are struggling, mm -hmm. and so it would it would benefit our society as a whole if both parents were given leave and if there was more support. Yes, and I, absolutely. Yeah, and I love treating my post, postpartum as one of my favorite areas to treat because there's so little support and it's also the hardest population for me to get in my door. Mm -hmm. uh, women will come in when they're, when they're dealing with infertility or if they're wanting to get ready for pregnancy, if they're, I can help a lot during pregnancy with nausea and tiredness and helping a baby to flip breech. And as soon as that baby is born, the moms just shove themselves on the back burner and, and miss out on a lot of support that they could have and they're, but they're not encouraged to get support. Yeah. And it's not really built into our systems. Mm -mm. The support is not really there. It's there if you can afford it, mm -hmm. but that's privilege. If you can actually afford the support. Right. And yeah, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be able to have a midwife for to, to do postpartum care for me. And she would come every few days when, when my babe was first born and then would come every other week. And then there were constant check-ins and I could reach out anytime with any questions. And it, it was amazing, especially for my first one to have that support since I had no idea what I was doing. 
Yeah. Well, and part of it too is that a lot of families don't live near each other anymore. I mean, we have a society right now where a lot of people will move out of state even and not be near their families of origin and for good or bad reasons, you know, um, you know, it, it is kind of what it is, but it seems like more than not, the people that I understand and, and are kind of my clients are the ones who don't live near their families. Mm -hmm. And that can bring about positive and negative consequences. I mean, maybe your parents or whoever is in your family is not really going to be a great influence for you as you raise your children. And maybe that's for the best, mm -hmm. but then there also needs to be some sort of support so that it's not this insulated, isolated type mm -hmm. of experience where you're in your home raising a child by yourself. I mean, yes, your, your partner might be there if you have a partner to raise the child with, but that's just putting too much on one singular system and it breaks, yeah. it will break the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are, we are supposed to be surrounded by people helping us all the time. There's always supposed to be an extra set of hands. I strongly believe that. And it's, it's true. It's not what happens for a lot of people and it's lonely and it's isolating and it's incredibly difficult. And I think that's probably a huge reason why there is an increase of postpartum depression and anxiety mm -hmm. as well. I think also anxiety, postpartum anxiety gets undiagnosed and unrecognized um, more so than depression. I mean, mm -hmm. depression is not quite as sneaky maybe in some ways as anxiety um, because a lot of people will normalize the anxiety of having a newborn and being like, oh, well, you know, they're so little and new and they look so fragile and I don't want to break them and I want to make sure that they're breathing when they're sleeping. And mm -hmm. um, you, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And um, yes, some of that like low level is normal. Yes. Um, but <laughs> I can say from personal experience, I really do believe that I had postpartum anxiety with my first child. And it was mm -hmm. not diagnosed and it wasn't really asked about even in those postpartum yeah. check-ins at either my um, appointments or at my son's appointments for his pediatrician. They do like a little bit of like check checklist things like, how are you feeling yeah. and all of that. And I was like, well, I'm not depressed, but I'm only sleeping like two hours a night and that's not really good. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm scared to go places with him. Um, and it would like set off almost a panic attack with me to go in the car with him because he hated his car seat. So he would just scream and cry the whole time. So we just didn't go anywhere. Um, that's not, that's not okay. <laughs> and I didn't have mom friends during that time. My parents lived 2000 miles away. Um, I really was like by myself with my mm -hmm. child for most of the day until my husband would come home. And there were days where I called him and I said, can you please come home early? I, I can't do this for much longer. Yeah. It's, I appreciate that they're doing the postpartum checklist, but it is a very flat checklist and it, it, 
does not pull a lot of information out and it'll catch the really big flags, but it won't catch the smaller ones and, and people are drowning in it. And I, I had, was fortunate enough to find a mom's group and I, I never, I am not a mom's group type of person. I, I, I'm an introvert. I don't like, it's, it can be hard for me to reach out to groups and and I consider it along the life saving line that I was able to go to this place and just sit and it was okay how I looked, that my baby was crying. And I, I wouldn't even talk most of the time. I would just sit and exist and listen to other people talk about their struggles. And it was so helpful to see that other people were struggling. And yes, man, the first day that I went, it was canceled and I didn't know when I started, it was in a store and I just started crying in the middle of the store. Cause I, it was such, took such energy to get there and to have that, um, such and a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was, it was, I'm thankful I had it. And I, I wish that, you know, I know this year has been especially difficult for people finding support and it's just, my heart goes out to the people who are even more isolated than usual. I know, especially if you didn't already have a built-in network or a system for support, mm -hmm. um, that makes it even more challenging. If you don't have family nearby, if you don't have trusted friends, they don't have to necessarily be other parents, but sometimes that can be an added help of like empathy and understanding because they've, they're also going through it or they've mm -hmm. been through it. You know, from my experience too, like I, like I said, I didn't have any mom friends. So it was very strange. And the friends I did have um, were busy and either had like children that were already grown and kind of out of the house and past that stage or didn't have children yet at all. And that wasn't helpful for me because they weren't really available. It was more about what they needed. And I loved those friends at that time, but it just didn't fit what I needed in that moment in my life. And eventually when I found myself needing to go to a therapist and talk about this stuff, cause I just was not able to do this by myself for long-term, I actually ended up creating my own mom group. Cause I was like, I don't even know where to look for people. So I, I went on meetup and I just created a meetup group to go and have people come to me and say, yeah, I need friends too. And it's so mm -hmm. weird like making friends as an adult, especially as a parent, it feels really awkward. It's, you really have to put yourself out there. And it's, once my kids were in school, that became much easier to make friends again. But yeah, if you're an adult and you're not working in a job with a lot of other people, which I wasn't, and if you don't have, if, you, if you're not around people that you grew up with, it's making friends, it's tough, it's, it's, it was a learning experience. I am thankful that my kids hit school age because that, that really opened my social life back up. Mm -hmm. Good on you for forming a mom's group. I, I am sure that there are people who are very happy to find that. <laughs> yeah, it, it existed for a little bit and we actually moved it over to Facebook instead of Meetup. But yeah, I gained some great friendships out mm -hmm. of that group of just people needing friends and needing other parents who understand what they're going through and to yeah. lean on those real moments of this is effing hard and mm -hmm. I cannot do this by myself. And when you feel like you're doing it by yourself for so long, eventually it will break. Yeah. 
I, I, so many things I wish about our culture, but I wish that we, you know, I wish I could live down the street for my best friend and my mom and, and have people on hand to be able to help with everything. Even, even having kids that are out of the newborn infant stage, just having someone I can drop my kids off and run an errand or get a moment's peace. Cause I, I don't have another partner. I don't have a partner to pass them off to when they're driving me crazy. And to be able to have those small gifts would be, are, are, they're crucial to well-being. And if you don't have those outlets, it, it, yeah, I'm with you. People will break. Yes. And I think the brokenness comes also from the lack of self-care and the lack of structure that we have in place to even support self-care for moms and parents. Yeah. And I, I know that by self-care, you're not meaning a bubble bath. You're meaning actual self-care, like, yeah. like therapy or acupuncture or right. t- taking time for yourself, actual like, quantities of time. Yeah. Yeah. The self-care, that's another rant I can go on. It's, it's not self-care. I mean, b- baths are nice, but that it doesn't, doesn't do enough. No, it does not. And sometimes I, I feel this myself. Um, but I've also known a lot of other parents saying like going to the grocery store by myself is self-care. Um, <laughs> cause then you, you don't have to untrue. <laughs> your children and you can just go by yourself. Um, it's like the best mini vacation, <laughs> <laughs> but it's also just getting groceries. You know, I really, really don't think that we would allow that to be self-care for of male. I Going agree. to the grocery store by yourself as a male is not self-care. No. And we should have those same expectations for, for the non-males as well, that that, that does not count. No. <laughs> Again, I can get into this like with a little bit of anger because I really, really think that there's so much gendered bias about self-care and what females and women and female identified people are allowed to Mm -hmm. do more so or less than male identified people. Yes. And I think allowed is the crucial word there and to not have guilt over taking time for yourself or time for what is needed. I don't think society is going to ease up on that one at all anytime soon. So I think we have to work on easing up on ourselves for that and encouraging our friends to take the time and care that they need for themselves as well. And I think waiting for society to flip that, we're going to be waiting an awfully long time. Yeah, But we can teach the children that we're bringing Mm -hmm. into the world how to do it better. Yeah. And remind them that they do need love too. And we can't ignore them, but we also need love and we need to take care of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can model that as parents for our children, doing self-care is important. You know, it's the same kind of thing with um, discipline and timeouts is, is what I talk with a lot of parents about because the old school traditional idea of a child gets in trouble, you send them to their room and they're, they're in timeout. Why not flip that and put yourself in timeout and do Mm -hmm. some self-care and notice I need a break. I can't keep doing this. Mm -hmm. Model that for your children and say, this is going too far, I need a break. Mm-hmm. It's, this, it's very similar to needing and fostering self-care. 
you mean like teaching emotional self-regulation and boundaries would have been incredibly useful as a child? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe would have served us as adults. Yeah, and it's- But it then, sounds, I don't know, then I wouldn't have a job, so. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's true. Extra I'm only half kidding. <laughs> I, it's, it's definitely been a point with my girls to teach them boundaries and, and emotional regulation and naming emotions. And I still, I'm learning how to do this. So I'm teaching them as I am learning myself. And I still strongly believe that my children would be better served by having a therapy fund instead of a college fund, mm -hmm. that that money is well spent. Cause I think no matter, no matter what life, we don't have people to talk to. We don't have people to, to share deep feelings with and to have that space held. And I think- It's very rare for people to have those kinds of real conversations in their lives um, with trusted, open, unapologetically their people. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times people will be, you know, friends, of course, but sometimes those friendships don't lend to those deep conversations that are really transformational. Sometimes they can, but that's not very often. And friends are not trained therapists most of the time, unless you're friends with a therapist. <laughs> right. Yeah. And well, and then if you're with a friend, I mean, they're sorting through their own baggage and their old hangups and biases and it takes a truly special person to be able to put their own things aside and hear you. Uh, yeah. And so now I, uh, I think even with, with people doing, you know, hopefully with each generation, we do a better job with our kids and what they're being taught. And I still think you're going to have a job 50 years from now. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if I want to be working 50 years from now, hopefully I'll be retired <laughs> by then, <laughs> but I'm really hoping that at least I'm making some difference by the people that I'm working with to help bring them a little bit more healing from their own experiences as children and what they experienced with their caregivers and parents and how they can do things differently for themselves and their children. That's mm -hmm. really my main goal. Mm -hmm. Well, especially now that we're finding more and more that you know trauma is passed down generationally through our through our mitochondria, through our DNA, there's even more of a reason to actively work on breaking those cycles and not allowing that trauma to continue. And it takes it takes work and it takes effort. And um, God, I <laughs> the amount of growth opportunities that I'm finding seem endless and exhausting. And that that you can look at it as an exhausting thing, or it can be really exciting and motivational. And um, I think it's part of living life to the fullest, you know, living life to the fullest doesn't just mean going out dancing every night, which I really miss or traveling to new places. But I think it's also deeply round with the personal growth. Mm -hmm. I think you're missing out on a lot if that doesn't happen. Yeah. And a lot of times people don't even know where to start with personal growth. And they just know, I don't want to do what my parents did. Or I'm not sure where to even start. So I'm just going to make it through every day and hope that I don't screw up my kids too much, or I, <laughs> I'll just be exhausted at the end of the day and get, you know, some rest, hopefully as I crash into my bed and just do it all over again tomorrow. Right. I mean, it's, it's like, before you get married, you hear that relationships are work and marriages take work, but what does that actually mean? Like nobody explained that part or how to do that work or what it looks like or 
the many shades of gray that that can take on. And it's just, I feel like there's a lot of vague references to things without a lot to back it up until you're actually in it. And then not a lot of, there is support, but knowing how to find that support can be difficult. Yeah. And well, there are options. Hey. I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's exactly why I created the partnerhood is because there's um, an idea of people knowing like, well, premarital counseling is a thing, you know, and I see plenty of premarital couples for therapy. Mm -hmm. I don't see a lot of pre-baby counseling. Mm -hmm. And that is so much more of a transition in a life cycle than people really give credit for. And knowing that either, you know, from my own personal experiences and from professional experiences and working with hundreds of couples over the years, that those two, there are two really main stressful times in a couple's life cycle, if they're choosing to have children. One is right after their kid is born mm -hmm. and right after their kids leave the home. Oh, yeah. So it's the new parent and empty nester times. And those times really test the strength of the relationship. And if there's anything that can be done to prepare for those times, it is well worth the cost of the investment. If you want to keep that relationship healthy and strong, then put some effort in preventative work rather than reparative work after the fact. And that reparative work takes so much more energy. It's the same on my end. People, people wait and wait and wait until they hit their breaking point and they can't deal with whatever's going on physically anymore and then come in. And if they had just come in just a little bit before that, undoing it is much easier. Yeah. And I, yeah, I, I, good advice for people just to do check-ins, just to have yes. a standing check-in appointment. And then when things go difficult or when they're having a rough time, then you can bump up those appointments if needed, but. Yeah, I mean, I, I tell people to think time. about it like, you know, you're doing routine maintenance on your car, you're going and getting oil changes, you're putting gas in it, you're doing tire rotations. You go to the dentist, hopefully every six months, you do an annual physical, um, but there's not a, a culture of understanding for preventative relationship stuff or preventative pain care. Mm -hmm. um, it's more like, ooh, I'm having these symptoms, I need to fix them. And that's the reparative work before anything even pops up like that, there's been lots of red flags that you've probably been ignoring for a while. And there's actually been studies that have shown it's about an average of six to seven years before people start to get help in therapy when they start notice things are going downhill. And that is a long time to just let things go on autopilot with no recognition of we need to do something to fix this. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna guess that for women, at least that it ties back into feelings of worthiness and self-care and you know just, just putting things off and putting on a happy face and not letting those feelings come through. and. I know in a partnership, it's different. There are two people involved, but the waiting for things to get really bad is a common trait with women or people who identify as women. It's just, it's par for the course. It's what we're taught to do from early on. And especially, you know, with kids in pain are dismissed, kids and feelings are put aside and, and that stays with you. Yeah, and it does a lot of damage in the long term. 
Mm -hmm. Because then you are doing so much more reparative work, which takes a lot longer. Like you said, it's what much more energy. It's usually a lot more time and money and investment rather than trying to be a little bit more preparative and preventative. Um, I think we have this mindset, we, the royal we, <laughs> uh, of, you know, well, it's not a problem now, so it's all right. Well, we also don't have a healthcare system that supports it or, and, and there's still biases against people getting therapy. There must be something terribly wrong with you if you're getting therapy. And it's, that's not the same across the world. It's, it's built into a lot of healthcare systems with good reason. Um, people get better faster with less intervention the earlier you catch things. Yes. And that, that's true in physical health and that's true in emotional health. Yeah, again, that's something I could talk about for a long time <laughs> is our, our healthcare system in this country because it is not really focused on preventative care. Mm -hmm. It's just not. It's focused on um, money-making and it's mm -hmm. focused on how can we treat things quickly, kind of like a, um, like a factory, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like kind of Fisher. moving you down yeah. the yes. assembly line to get you in and out. I mean, that's what a typical labor ward even looks like is, you know, you just pack the women in there to give birth. You move them into like another room after they actually deliver the baby and then you get them out of there. And there's very specific timelines for how long people can stay in there as well. And if you're not hitting those timelines, then, then you are hurried along, right. whether or not your body or the baby is ready. And yeah, it's, it's a very, I mean, it should be so efficient with how it's set up like that. And it's still, God, it's still not, but they really try for that. Yeah. And then if you get any, you know, anywhere outside of a place of privilege, then th those things just stack up harder and the, and the outcomes are much more detrimental. Yes, or dangerous. I mean, the maternal uh, morbid morbidity morbidity rate for Black women is atrocious in our country, and it's it is. it's not something that is being addressed. No, and I mean ma maternal morbidity anyway in our country is much higher than it really should be. For a first world country, it is we are we are very low on the list of yes. of success rate. It's it's but pretty, then you put the added people of color into that mix and it's even worse and mm -hmm. ugh, anyway we're getting into a lot of like controversial <laughs> topics here today um uh, it's all right i spent a lot of time not talking about controversial things and i'm over it now <laughs> i have opinions and i'm okay with sharing them yeah me too and you yeah, know it's way more fun this way yeah better conversations uh, this way when we speak our mind well, and they're real conversations that I think maybe we are just not having either because we're scared or we don't have the capacity to do so on an intelligent level. <laughs> it can be it can be hard when there's emotions involved to keep. Yes, intelligent level. I mean, getting into passion is, is not a bad thing. It can be viewed as, uh, especially between women, as um, scary or you know you get into the the bitch category or the uh, just all those words that are used around women who have a voice so it's there's a lot of uh learned lessons to not get into conversations yeah and i also mean not just like mental intelligence but emotional intelligence 
Yes. Oh, you mean when it dissolves into name calling or personal attacks? Yeah, the typical, you know, comment thread that you see on social media yes. of people going back and <laughs> forth and the educate yourself and mm -hmm. uh, do your research and those kinds of things really, yeah. really crawl under my skin um, <laughs> because we all have different opinions. And yes, we can get our sources from wherever we choose to research. Um, Anyway, we're going down a really big yeah. rabbit hole here. <laughs> um, but bringing it back to, uh, you know, kind of wrapping up for our talk today, because we're at the end of our time, there's so much that comes from just needing to care for ourselves that I think we're just trying to hit home today and talking with whoever's tuning in is the self-care part of it, the outside support part of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so many different avenues and how to be able to do that. Acupuncture being one of them, therapy being one of them, having friends and family who are reliable and available is one of them. Massage, having a, you know, a partner who's actually there. Uh, I mean, there's so many different right. avenues and to allow ourselves, especially as women and females, allow ourselves to be able to tap into the help when we need it and when we want it, <laughs> not just when we need it, because sometimes when we need it is when it's way past the point of when we actually needed it. Well, and not to feel shame or guilt or less than for needing it, just recognizing it as a human need and that is valid. Yeah. Um, well, as we finish our time today. I just, I want to thank you, Anna, for tuning in with me. I really appreciated talking with you. We could talk for a lot longer. Um, <laughs> and time just flew for me in talking with you. Um, if people would like to reach out to you and connect with you, how could they do that best? Yeah, people are welcome to, you can find me through my website, pricklymermaid.com. Send me an email at Anna at pricklymermaid.com. Feel free to grab a number, send me a message. I love talking to people. I love talking about this medicine and I really value the education piece. So if people have questions, I'm, I'm really always happy to talk about it. Excellent. Thank you again for being here with me and for anyone tuning in. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with our next interview on Wednesday. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to the Partnerhood Podcast with Christy Sears-Thompson. Please stay tuned for our next episode.